LGBTU. Your stories, our community. Hello and welcome to this first episode of LGBTU, a podcast for us from inside our queer community. It's about where we live, our jobs, money, where we work out, where we drink, maybe even a little bit of where we dance with a little bit of sex too. So what are you going to hear? Well, coming up today in this first episode, Gaze the Word is the UK's most important LGBT bookshop. It plays a big part in that brilliant film, Pride, that you've probably seen. Now you'll hear how it survived being raided by the government, being vandalised by a hostile community, and why it's been such a crucial part of gay life for Londoners for four decades. Gay bars weren't open, you know, so this was also a place where people could meet. And I love, sometimes you'll see, you know, two young dykes come in and then they'll sneak a kiss and they're on their first date. Now, Lady Phil was told by the organisers of Pride that black people would never be able to take part. As she walked away in a meeting in tears, she decided to set up UK Black Pride. We talked racism in the LGBT community and her fight for visibility. As a black lesbian woman, I'm not often given the opportunity to talk about these things because we don't see ourselves in media or on TV or hear ourselves on the radio. And you'll hear the first of our coming out stories. First up, it's Sophie and, and wow, it's going to blow your head off. And I just spent so many years of my life living in denial about who I am and who I love. I was constantly thinking, uh, how can a 21-year-old just come out as a lesbian. Welcome to LGBTU, a place where we can listen and learn from each other. And look, I'm not professing to know everything. In truth, I'm doing this because I want to learn too. My name's Simon. I'm a journalist here in London. I'm a Yorkshire lad by birth. Um, And I suppose, because I'm a journalist, I'm nosy. I like to ask questions. I like to hear people talk. And I love to listen. So I've got some wicked stuff lined up for this first few episodes. And I'm hoping that we can go on a bit of an adventure. Enjoy. LGBTU, your stories, our community. Oh, can you hear those birds singing? It's a beautiful morning in central London. I'm just walking through Lambs Conduit Street, an area of Hoburn that's filled with Georgian history, beautiful houses. Just around the corner is the Charles Dickens Museum. And I'm just on my way to one of my favourite stores in this great city. It's a bookstore called Gaze the Word. It's the most important LGBT plus bookshop in the country. Uh, up until recently, it was the only one of its kind. Another has just opened in Scotland, but but this one here, Gaze the Word, has so much history. Usually you go to a bookstore to pick up history. Instead, the bookshop is just full of it in its own right. So I'm heading there to speak to Jim, who's a manager. He's been there since the start and his knowledge of LGBT history and what it's like to be an LGBT business now in 2019 surpasses far more than many others. Jim, good morning. Good morning, how are you doing? I'm Simon, nice to meet you. Pleasure. Firstly, just just describe for me the shop in, in your most eloquent of way okay uh, the shop at the moment is sort of long and thin 
um, with uh, a window right at the back, big plate glass window as you as uh, on the on the front. Uh, as you come in, there's a small till uh, and a desk with badges and books, and then it's after that it's books. Um, there used to be lots of spinners with books on them. We've kind of got rid of that just to streamline it. And the shelves are all sorts. Um, there are bookshelves that we handmade ourselves back in 79. Uh, there's a posh bit when we had a bit of money and uh, we bought bespoke shelves from a uh, bookshop, bookshelving company. And then there are other shelves where some shops were closed and we thought, oh, we could do with those books. Uh, or those bookshelves and use them. Um, so it's it's um, not chic, is all I'm going to say. Um, put together but lovingly. Put together lovingly. Someone said there's love and blue tack, is what one somebody <laughs> said. And I thought, fine. The carpet, um, uh, my co-worker put that down. And those were, um, someone was throwing out, you know, some... Uh, carpet tiles we thought grand we'll have those thanks very much can you just uh, try and describe the color of the carpet tiles? well it's now it's now red with a pattern it was very bright initially but it's faded over the years thank god it worked we're um yeah um it's i suppose the focus is on the books that's 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 um, that's what i see and and there are you know some rainbow flags and ACDC and a big picture of Quentin Crisp and and some posters. So it's quite visual. Um, it's very visual behind you because we're, we're at the cash desk, but behind it is a, a huge notice board. Just just tell me about this because there's so much on it. So uh, there's a notice board with um, things pinned up and lots of the free papers. And, of course, back in the orig- in the day, there was a huge notice boards at the back. There was about five of them. And when you wanted to find flats in London, uh, you know, you would come to Gaze the Word or find a lover or find news on clubs that were happening. Uh, and this is where you would go. Behind me here, there are uh, pits and, an original Pits and Perverts poster from Lesbians Gay Support the Miners. There's some um, stickers... Uh, gender queer, asexual, rainbow, trans, bi. Um, some images of the shop. This is a picture of the shop from about the mid twenties. And then these were. This is somebody painted this. Um, and there's just different posters, bits and bobs. I hope it's not too confusing. So you said people. You said people came here to find a lover. Does that mean bookshop cruising? Uh, there used to be lots of it. I wish there was more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm free. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. It would be a space in daytime cruising back in the 80s. I mean, because gay bars weren't open, you know, so this was also a place where people could meet. And I love, sometimes you'll see, you know, two young dykes come in and then they'll sneak a kiss and they're on their first date. Um, we've had a proposal uh, right at the back of two women uh, proposed to each other, which is just really nice. Or claiming their space and holding hands, you know, this is who I am. And I go, you go, girl. Um, the, yeah, uh, right at the back, because uh, it was a seating area and then people used to smoke uh, back in the day. Um, and you'd have coffee and bring in sandwiches and stuff and talk around things. But you would, there were personal ads. Uh, as well as, as uh, you know, if you, you come to London and you know you're a lesbian or gay, you need to find a flat so you can be that. Uh, well, the evening stand is not going to say, not going to be have ads that say that back in the 80s. So you, you would, this was a specific place. It was a really important space for finding flats. No dark room. 
no comment. But there's a basement downstairs. What what happens downstairs stays downstairs. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> that's a good idea. That would that would increase sales. <laughs> you just have to make sure people bought something afterwards. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of bleach. Oh God, help us! <laughs> but certainly. Um, if we enter dark times again, I'll know. Feck it, we may as well use the basement. <laughs> Sex parties a go-go. <laughs> Sorry to jump in here. As the shop was open, a customer wanted advice on books from Jim at this point, but they didn't want to be recorded by me asking them pesky questions, which is totally cool. So here is Jim again. No more interruptions, I promise. LGBTU, your stories, our community. This year, in 2019, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary. I joined the bookshop in uh, 89, so I'm here 30 years. But we did have a big event at British Library um, earlier this year, in February, uh, and I met for the first time the guy who set the bookshop up. Uh, And it was a privilege to meet him and to shake his hand and say, look how your baby has grown. And this guy was his name, Ernest Hull, and... um, he went, he was in New York in the late 60s. Um, and he went in 68 and became friends with Craig Rodwell, who had set up the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, which is the first of the modern gay bookshops. Um, and Craig Rodwell is also one of the people who set up the Christopher Street Parade after the Stonewall Riots, which morphed into what we now know as Pride. Um, Ernest told me he went back in 69 and arrived the day after the Stonewall riots had begun, or finished rather, um, and then he went to the first Gay Liberation Front meeting and came back to London thinking, wouldn't it be great to have a bookshop in London like this? And um, it took 10 years, and uh, he was a member of Icebreakers, which was a gay socialist group which ran a helpline and discos and uh, discussion groups. Uh, and they got together and they set up a bookshop. And it was set up to be both half bookshop, half meeting space, right from the very start. Hi there, hello. Um, um, and it was lesbian, gay, feminist. Um, uh, and it was... Um, before that, you, I mean, there were other gay bookshops, but they tended to be gay male spaces or with a wide emphasis on porn. And Gay's the Word was London's serious, first serious gay bookshop. It was about ideas. Like you said, it opened four decades in 1979, but you said it took him 10 years to get it open. Obviously, that must have been 10 years of fighting to get a a store open like this at that time. I would have thought it would have been more just finding the money and I mean he had another job and doing stuff and then finding premises he did bookstalls and you have a dream and wonder will it ever happen um, and then initially he when he um, was looking for premises and they'd settled on here and put in an application to Camden Council uh, it was ignored and was it been taken seriously this wasn't a gay area and as he said to me with a name like Ernest Toll it was did they think someone was taking the piss? Uh, and actually, Ken Livingston, who was a councillor at the time, got in touch and said, no, this is serious. And of course, because it's a first, because it's not a porn bookshop, uh, and that notion of the councillors, would they assume that that's what it was going to be in a residential area? Because this was a one-off. Nothing had been seen like this before in the UK. 
So it was famous ex-London Mayor Ken Livingston that marked the ticket to, to get the door open here. Yeah, that's right. That's right, yeah. And um, uh, and many years later, um, when we were raided by Customs and Excise, moving on to 84 and they seized all the American stock, Ken was very supportive and came and visited the shop. Um, this was Customs assumed the shop must be a porn shop and came in and seized uh, all the American stock and then it took we fought back and we formed a defence campaign and it took two years before those charges were dropped. T- tell me what those times must have been like to get raided by the government for supposedly them thinking you have contraband, illegal goods and you're selling books. Selling books. Well, it's it's the control over what you can read. So some of the books that were seized included um, the joy of gay sex and the joy of lesbian sex. Um, and we knew that they would probably be, they could well be seized at some point. Looking back at the, uh, in our archives recently for a talk I was giving, it was fascinating. They knew that what they were importing might well be challenged at some point. But it was set up by gay socialists. Uh, for them, it was really important that we had the right to read what we wanted. And the straight equivalent was out there. So why shouldn't we have a two? So it's about pushing the boundaries. Sorry, there are, the shop Hello. is open and there are customers here, so Jim's just going to do a bit of saving. Don't be scared. <laughs> Hi, how you doing? Graham, thank you. That's 1788, please. That's your good self, thank you. Put in a big bookmark which says where we are. So now that you've found us, <laughs> you're back. Well, I hope you enjoy the book. Okay. Thanks. Hey, thanks a lot, Mary. Cheers. Bye bye. Have a good day. Yes, you were saying um, you felt the need uh, as a team, as a group, the guys yeah. that own the shop, you needed to have your own store too. To. to uh, have as wide a range of books uh, on what it meant to be uh, lesbian or gay available to to our community. Um, And not enough has been published in the UK, so you had to import in from the US, which is a much bigger market, and there were all these new ideas and new politics. Some of the books that were seized included The Front Runner by Patricia Nell Warren, which is a very famous uh, romantic novel about being a, a coach and a runner, um, books by Christopher Isherwood and Gore Vidal, and books on erotic gay fiction. But, you know, we have a right to read that. There was nothing obscene about that. Um, uh, I was looking through some of the books that were seized uh, and where they were marked, and, you know, some of the most innocent stuff, but just the notion of two men being together in itself, people were uncomfortable with. And the... When they had to fight the case, it wasn't about whether there was any literary merit. It's what the man in the street would think. And we know what the man in the street would have thought about gay people at that time. Well, that's my question. The the early 80s were a turbulent time politically, historically, for Mm -hmm. LGBT people. Uh, You you know, we only have to look at what happened in Parliament, Section, Section 28 at the end of the 80s. 
How was it in terms of trying to run a business at that point? The people, you need suppliers, you need to people to trade with you. Was that difficult, establishing business relationships, renting premises, being part of a business community when the, the social situation towards LGBT people was so tense? You had to be taken seriously as a um, viable business and responsible. So there could be difficulty initially um, getting setting up credit card, credit cards and stuff. Um, once we had the bookshop running, um, we had wooden shutters were put up every night uh, to protect the windows from, it, from being broken. Uh, and graffiti would go up on those shutters, uh, like, you know, pads, stay away from kids, you know, usual just homophobic stuff. Um, but the shop was very busy right from the very start. It was a community hub. Um, and um, as you can see from the bookshop, there's big plate glass windows. And the name gaze, the word, wasn't about hiding away. It was about claiming your space. Uh, this wasn't down a dark alley or in a, a you know, um, a difficult-to-get-to space in town. It was fairly central. Round here at the time, of course, this area was about to be redeveloped, which is why they could afford the rents here. And King's Cross up the road was sort of fairly seedy and run down. And indeed, Marchmont Street was run down. There was a squat underneath and all of that because uh, it was all going to be redeveloped. Yeah. Tell me about those those early years then, those first 10 years when you opened and you were establishing as a business. Like I said, the political situation was changing. There was a lot of activism. And, you know, this shop is very famous for its its contribution and its part in that story. Because we're set up by gay socialists, by icebreakers, and there were lots of volunteers. Um, because it was half cafe, and there weren't... Old Compton Street wasn't there as a gay space. Uh, so lots of people came and, you know, would have coffee and uh, cake or t- smoke, <laughs> talk about ideas. Lots of the early prides were organised from Gays the Word. Um, mm. There were different groups met. Um, a gay black group was formed. Uh, There was uh, Irish Gays in London, Uh, there was a gay disabled group, a lesbian discussion group was started in 1980, that's still running, uh, all those years later. Uh, And it was just, it was very community focused. Um, You also had, there was uh, a gay socialist, actually it's gone. Yeah, there was, I used to come, when I first came out in 84, when I came to London, there was icebreakers of gay socialist group, and I used to come and meet. And There's another customer coming. Oh, yeah? How are you doing, Robin? Are you all good? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah? How are you? Yeah, really good. Really yes. This is a podcast, yeah. Oh, cool. Are you a regular shopper? Semi-regular, yeah, I would say. Um, I'm friends with Erica, who also works here. We did our PhDs in the same place. Um, yeah, and I saw a talk featuring you in Belfast um, earlier this month. It was about Kong. Oh, Kong to Bean. Yeah. Owen, Owen Plays, theatre. Yeah. Yes. In the yeah. Irish diaspora. Yeah. yeah, and that's when you were very me. young. <laughs> I, was the 20, I was 24. <laughs> oh my God, you have my age. That's so funny. What, for you, what, why do you come here? Why do you like the shop? It's very welcoming. It's... I was, I was overhearing what you were saying earlier in the big glass windows and it, it feels a lot more welcoming than, say, going into a space in a dark alley in Soho, which going into spaces like that, they tend to be very like cis gay male spaces and this place feels a lot more open and inclusive and they have a really 
great range of books and the rich history of it really adds to why I want to shop here because today I could have gone to Foils and got the same book but I chose to make the extra journey and come here to buy it to support this business um, yeah the people are friendly people are lovely and obviously there's no shortage of online you're a millennial young the, the choices for, for, for people to buy books online so you're choosing to ignore that and, and support a community focused store yeah I mean like listening to what you were saying earlier like this was originally like a socialist organized like this was started by socialists and like I'm socialist as well and like coming here rather than buying from Amazon which has exploitative like labor practices and coming here and supporting a local business that shares politics with kind of my, like shares my politics feels important and to shop somewhere where I know the labor isn't being exploited great thank you well look I'll let you finish yeah. your purchase it, it was interesting recently where um, there was a campaign for Waterstones to pay the London living wage. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, and it's, it's got, it had a lot of traction, and I was just really surprised that they don't. I thought, they're a huge organisation. Pay, pay your workers. We certainly do, and we're a very small organisation. Hello, Gazer Wad. Hello. Hello. Oh. What comes to mind when people think of gays the word these days is lesbian gay support the miners and the miners strike of 84. Um, and back in 1984, um, LGSM used to meet here and used to collect money outside. Uh, and it's supposed to have been uh, immortalised, I suppose, in the film Pride. Um, and that's brought a whole range of new people into the bookshop. Now, the film isn't a documentary, you know, it's a drama. And while they met here... Um, and a lot of people already knew each other from coming to groups here. They also met in other places. Um, but most of those places are now gone. So in the film, it's as if they only ever met here. And that's not actually true. But there is a blue plaque to Mark Ashton up above the bookshop. And, you know, it was an important space. Um, at the same time as that was happening, we were fighting customs and excise to deal with that raid I was talking earlier, uh, where they'd seized all the books. So 1984 was a very dark year for us, very difficult. But back in the 80s, when I came to London, if you wanted gay books, uh, you came to Gays the Word. Uh, there was also um, Silver Moon, opened in, I think, 84, 85, which was um, lesbian feminist, women's bookshop, and Sisterite, which was another women's bookshop. And some of the lefty bookshops would have LGBT sections, but other places didn't. So if you want to, and there isn't an internet, if you want to know what's happening, you come to us. So there was a real uh, draw. The place would be packed all the time. What was it like then at that time when the, when the shops were packed? She had an, a nice community of other stores serving the community. Were they all successful? Did some survive, some die? What's that cycle been like? Um... Well, Silver Moon became very famous and lasted a very long time. I mean, I think it closed in 2000, and just to do with rents, it certainly wasn't about the six, about not enough people. They just couldn't uh, sustain incredible rent increases in central London. And that's always a problem, uh, and that's what's killed lots of businesses uh, when rents become unrealistic. The other thing about books, they're a set price, and you get a, you know... Booksellers, you get a discount from the main price of the book. It's not like having dildos where 
you make them for a small amount of money in China and you know whack them on at twenty four ninety five or forty quid, the markup isn't huge. It's very different. Um, and also with the bookshop, of course, if you want to sell some photo book or erotica, you can sell masses of it. But for us, it's important that we've books on biography and history and poetry. Um, so we'll have as wide a range of books as possible. And even if you're only selling eight copies of this and six copies of that, that's what we want to do. It's not just it's not just about the volume of some bestseller, or that helps to um, subsidize books that don't sell so much. Um, one of the other things about working here was that you can have great ideas and um, heart and um, uh, but you have to have A, a knowledge, and you also have to be hard-headed uh, about paying your bills and seeing where you stock the staff and making sure that some things are going or not. Uh, and if you don't do that, the place fails, and you fail the community in a sense. So it's seriously done, and it's very professional. I, I did a bit of research before I came, looked at the Booksellers Association figures, in 1995, there were 1,900 independent bookstores in the UK. Mm. Up until last year, 883. That's more than half have disappeared. Mm. Having four decades of that, it's, it's pretty much a, a testament to, obviously, initiative and trying to be entrepreneurial and ensure the business survives. Tell me about the pressure that that has put on you. In the 90s... Um General bookshops, chains uh, like Waterstones and others, um, looking for new markets, set up lesbian and gay sections. So you no longer had to come to us to get books. You could get them in other places. And then borders arrived. Um, and they had huge spaces, beautifully done, and would have major gay sections. The end of, net, the, end of the net book agreement... Uh, meant that you could now discount books, which big bookshops could do because they could demand bigger discounts. The net book agreement had been in operation for a very long time, and it meant you couldn't discount books. So whether you bought books in Foils, Waterstones, Smiths, or here, they were all at one price. Um, with discounts, you're going, oh, why should I buy a book here when there's four pounds off in Foils um, or Waterstones? Uh, and that really affected independent bookshops and smaller shops, and they started to close. Prices of books also went up, so that publishers weren't affected. You know, someone's got to pay for the, the discounts. Um, um, and we survived, but it became more and more difficult. And then Soho took off, and Prowler had books in, you know, more books uh, in their shop in Soho. Uh, and that became the main strip. When we opened, Soho wasn't there. That was, Soho was a sex area. Um, and we thought, we thought in about 2000, maybe, our time had come. And we thought, well, I, and if it has, that's okay. How do we survive? Nobody earns you a living if you can access books in other places. Uh, maybe it's time to close up. Um, but we put word out there and said, hey, people, this is how it is. Because you've got a long history and you're taken for granted. Um, and it was extraordinary, the response. It was picked up by the Times and the Guardian and then the BBC. And we sent out an email to people saying, sponsor a shelf. And then all of these checks came in, 100 quid. And all this response came back, and people started using the shop again. And we had letters from people, a bit like 
reading your obituary before your dad, people saying, oh my gosh, you were there for me when I was coming out, you know, back in the early 80s. Uh, and it's such an important space, and, and thank you. And um, most of the money, we wrote to all the famous people, of course, whether they even see the letters, you know, they've got PAs, and they get asked a lot. So most of the money raised was from ordinary customers, and this is before crowdfunding. So it's all, uh, and it's be- was it before? There was emails. But there wasn't uh, Facebook, Twitter. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, done by letter and stuff. Uh, and it saved the shop. And since then, it's gone from strength to strength. And it's that thing of don't take something for granted, use it or lose it. So we've gone from being a really important space to becoming dusty and forgotten to somehow slipped into a new mode of uh, thriving and becoming iconic. Some of the thriving iconic is to do with pride, and it's also about recently we opened, uh, we have a new worker, Erica, and she um, changed our young adult section and put it in a more prominent space. So there's so many young people coming in. The very first person in today was a young woman with her mom, and the dad was outside. Uh, looking around, then she bought a book. And then the second person who saw had walked by and asked her some romance and went, I didn't know bookshops like this existed. Then I talked her through some stuff and she bought two books. But like, you come in and you go, oh my God, because we take it for granted. And I'm here a long time. And that response, this is why we're here. And now the third person, a young trans bloke, you know, who knows the shop on the politics. So you know, my very first three customers have been three different types, all of whom, when they come here, find a space that is theirs. How do you reflect on what your contribution is to their life and the education and the help and support that not necessarily just you, but the books that you've curated and the space that you're using changes them? Well, I think it's done and held very lightly. Um, I make sure the staff that uh, I've taken on are nice, are easily friendly. Good idea. Yeah, no stuff. There's a lot of attitude in London. Or there can be attitude, you know, in, in bars, if you're not cute enough, you're not wearing the right clothes, do you get served the way some cutie does? You know, there's all <laughs> this, you know, this, um, yeah, pecking order. Hierarchy. Yeah. And here I don't want any of that crap. Um, I'm also aware... There was a young woman recently, and as she bought some books, she suddenly welled up and then apologised, getting emotional. I went, hey, hey, don't apologise. When I first came to the bookshop uh, all those years ago, I froze at the door and I couldn't come in. And then I walked round the block, because everybody would know. And I walked round the block and then I walked in. And I've never forgotten that. And you never know where people are on their individual journey. So I talked to down and said it's okay to feel emotional this is your space this is why we're here so look around and then we chatted for a bit and we laughed but as she was leaving it's that thing of you've come home because in a very heteronormative world out there and it is hugely heteronormative where you come into a space where it tries to be non-judgmental you know, you get people coming in and you can hold hands or touch or look around and there's a wide range of stuff, wide, wide range of books. So that door is, is, is such a threshold. It's a threshold mm-hmm. into a world of, of information. And I know as when I was a 16-year-old, you talked about borders, but me being from Leeds, there was no LGBT bookshop. 
and I I found my sort of safety and first bits of information about being LGBT on those shelves in mm. Borders in that section it was the first place I ever got cruised. I had no idea what was going on as a 16-year-old. But yeah, these, these spaces are important for information and that's what you're providing. Yeah, And people sometimes asked how we used to feel about LGBT sections in other bookshops. And my response is, is I'm delighted. Um, you know, uh, if Waterstones in Hull or, or Leeds or, you know, wherever has an LGBT section, you go in, you're validated. That space is there. You know that it's okay, you know, and you may not be able to go over and buy books initially, but just knowing it's there is really important. I'm aware there's pressure, you know, if books aren't selling, those sections can get smaller and smaller or just become erotica, but it's good that they're out there. Talking about what's on the shelves, how has that changed over 40 years? What you stock on the shelves, what you buy, what's popular with your customers, how has that shifted? Because, you know, the debate, the discussion about gender, about fluidity, about sexuality has changed massively, even in the last 10 years. So how has that been reflected on what you sell? Um. One of the big things that has changed is the collapse of LGBT publishers. Um, and in the old days, mainstream publishers weren't interested, so we had to do it ourselves. Uh, because, you know, for a small publisher, if you sell 5,000 books, that's loads. For a big publisher, that's nothing. They're not interested. So we had own voices and um, we had control. New publishers, they're now more interested, so all publishers will now produce some LGBT stuff, but often it's more mainstream, so it can be difficult to get a, um, a publisher. And we have to import in a lot in from the States. Um, one of the big things that changed more recently is our trans section, which used to be about um, two shelves, is now five. Uh, a, because of changes of interest, but also there's more stuff being published. It's like where LGBT, uh, lesbian and gay politics was in the 80s. And that's really interesting. Um, and the increase in YA and graphic novels. YA is young adult. And there's a huge amount of stuff being published, um, which looks, often they will have bisexual, gender fluid, non-binary, trans characters just thrown in there. Uh, and that's really interesting. It's a real change. Um, and in another sense, nothing changes. We have as wide a range of books as possible as we've ever done, you know. Uh, and there's a huge amount being published, and there's lots of great stuff. Uh, I'm still excited, you know, picking up new novels and going, God, this is good, or, oh, I missed the point there, you know. But uh, history, there's lots of history being done, and there's an interest. Yeah. So it's, uh, and certainly this year, it's the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, so there'll be even more stuff coming out. It's an exciting time. You talk about history and it, that anniversary of Stonewall, but what about the younger, as I say, the younger crowd that are coming in, that are becoming your new customers? How are they finding the shop? Uh, and how do you think they'll take the shop forward? Because you'd think, you know, in the age of the smartphone, they'd just want to endeavour on a screen rather than picking up paper. I had wondered with ebooks again, I thought, oh, is this the end of the book? And I think we spend so much time on our computers and on looking at our phones that actually to switch off um, 
is a lovely thing, and young people are doing a lot of physical reading. Um, uh, the other thing is with when people are coming in, people of my generation, I'm in my 50s, you know, I've read Gore Vidal and Isherwood and Sarah Waters and Jeanette Winterson and Tennessee Williams. Uh, young people coming in, all of this is new. You know, uh, it's all new writing. I had uh, somebody ask me, oh, is Tennessee Williams gay? And I went, yeah. And why would they know? And then we talked about their plays and then the book was there. And they, had li- they really liked his work but hadn't put those connections together. So it's always um, about discovery. Uh, and new books are being written all the time. Yeah. How are they finding you? How, do, how, how are you getting your message out there for, for them to find you? Or you know, uh, do they find you? Uh, thank God for social media, if you use it properly. I mean, it can be toxic. Uh, but Twitter, I think we've got about 25,000 on Twitter, and Instagram, we've got about 8,000, and that's only in the last year. So we're quite proactive about putting word out there. We've never had much money for advertising, so when you depended on getting word out in magazines, it was much more difficult. But now there's far more control, and we're just you know, putting word out there, oh, this is an interesting play has come out, or look at these books, or we're open here, or someone is coming to do a signing or a reading. Um, and it gets retweeted and, and followed, and uh, loads of people find us on Instagram. So we're keeping up to date. <laughs> God help us. But yeah, it's, it's all, um, it's social media is hugely important. And, and, and the messages we put out, we don't engage in some of the um, Twitter wars that can suddenly happen. We try and be uh, as neutral as possible. The film Pride yep. just uh, is on Netflix. Uh, it has been, yes. Yeah. Did that have a positive impact on the business? Oh, the film Pride's been extraordinary. I had no idea when I gave permission for them to use the shop. They didn't actually film here, but to use the name and then to recreate the shop. And some of the books came from our basement and they took away a lot of information and worked away in it. I had no idea of the impact. Um, And we get visitors from all over the world. And not just to take a photograph, they may want to buy a poster or a t-shirt and then buy books and come in. So it's become kind of a place of pilgrimage, but one that's still active. They come in and find the books and come back. Yeah, yeah, Pride's been um, extraordinary. And, and, and we still, you know, we're in contact with the guys in Pride. Mike Jackson's in next week to be photographed for staff, and Jonathan and Gethin and differing people come in. Yeah, yeah. Must be a great feeling. It's a wonderful feeling, yeah. I wasn't in the film, and, and I was on 84 uh, March, uh, but a bit, and indeed the 85, but a bit like Bromley. I think 84 was my first March. And uh, a clueless now, but I thought, okay, I had a great time. <laughs> we were walking down the back streets and ending up in Yulu. It's where we ended up, um, the Yulu building. Last question then, because I know it's uh, Friday is a busy day for the shop. Um, where do you think the shop goes from here? What does the next 40 years look like? Are you going to carry on sitting there and selling books for as long as you can and teaching people about what you've learned mm. in these yeah. four walls? Mm. I'm a very lucky man in that I love bookselling. I love my customers. It's, we have people from, you know, 14 to 90, and I enjoy the interactions with people. 
So that's, that's a great privilege and a pleasure. I also work with two very dynamic uh, people, Uli and Erica, uh, who have huge knowledge and passion. And it's a pleasure seeing where they want to use the shop and how, they, how they'd like to move it forward. Um, hello there, hiya. hiya. Don't know where it's going, but you know, it's all exciting. So that was Jim from Gaze the Word. If you've not been down to the store, go see Jim and his team, buy a book, support the community. It's a great space. LGBTU, your stories, our community. Now, a few weeks ago, I went to an event in South London at the Two Brewers Pub. For those who know the city, it's quite a famous little spot for a dance and a good Friday or Saturday night out. Anyway, they were hosting an event called Queer Say, which is an event after my own heart, really. It gathers people from across the LGBT plus community together uh, and gets them to speak about one single issue. This time it was about visibility. Uh, there was a stellar cast of guests and among them, um, an icon, really, of the queer community, Lady Phil. She's the founder of UK Black Pride, an organisation she started almost 15 years ago. Now, she was there and she, she told the room of people about how Black Pride came about and what happened when she first approached the organisers of UK Pride. This is what she told the room where we were when she asked if she could join UK Pride. Why don't you fuck off and go back to where you came from? So I say this, and I still, up to today, get quite emotional about the fact that we walked into a meeting of people who are LGBT plus that understand marginalisation, discrimination to a greater or lesser degree. Some of those people marched when it was around Section 28. Some of those people were around in 1972 when we had the very first Pride. But yet still, we come to the table and we say we want to create a black pride and want to have a space that centers us because we don't see ourselves in wider mainstream pride activities. And we get told to fuck off. All we could do is we got up the tears that rolled down from our face as we turned around and walked out of that room and we were told, under no circumstance would you be able to have a black pride in this country. There's Lady Phil telling the room how she was told to F off by the organisers of Pride and to go back to where she came from. But Black Pride is now more than a decade old and it's thanks to her. I had a quick chat with Phil after she'd finished addressing the group. Uh, and just to bear in mind, we were in the stairwell of the pub, apologies, you do hear people on the stairs behind us. Now, I listened to you give some incredibly powerful testimony inside that room there. You said that you were tired. You said that you were angry. You know, sometimes when we are constantly fighting for equality, freedom and justice, and we're not being given the opportunity to be visible, to be heard, we're not believed and we're not looked at or we're erased. The job is made 20 times harder. So yes, we become angry, we become tired and we need the rest of our community 
regardless of whether you're white, black, whether African, Caribbean, Spanish, Eastern European, whatever you may be, we need the whole LGBT plus community to come together and stand in solidarity and campaign and mobilize for everybody's rights. And we're talking here, from what I understand, about racism within our own community. Is that, is that how you perceive it? Because it's not something that I want to hear, and, but, but that's your fight, isn't it? Well, I think that everything's my fight because... I get that, yeah, I get that. because we, I don't want to have a hierarchy of inequality. And when I say, talk about racism within the LGBT plus community, that's very real. You know, we've got black men, men of colour on Grindr still receiving comments like no blacks or, you know, no curry because they don't want Indian men, no this, no that. That's racism and it has to be called out and it's not called out enough. So I think my fight is just to make sure that we have equal rights. And we're not going to do that if we're a standalone voice. What I want is loads of voices to amplify and turn up the volume, making it impossible for people to turn the volume down on us. How do we do that? I'm, you know, I'm a Leeds lad. I'm, I'm from New Yorkshire originally. We're down here in the corner of South London. How do we make my 62-year-old dad who's up in the corner of White Leeds how do we do that from down here? I think generational, it's difficult, but if we start usualizing the conversation and being visible and making it the, as people use the word, norm, then that way people will start thinking, actually, this is part and parcel of who we are, or this is what society looks like, this is what a diverse Britain looks like. And that way you can't, be angry at something which is constantly seen but when it's not seen your dad in Leeds might think oh that's a bit odd that's a bit not that's not right but it's bit by bit exactly what you're doing right now you're asking me questions and you're allowing me to tell a story to talk about the things which I'm passionate about and as a black lesbian woman I'm not often given the opportunity to talk about these things because we don't see ourselves in media or on TV or hear ourselves on the radio, but you're creating now a space for different voices to be heard, and that's exactly how we do it. What's the core thing then that we need to learn from each other? It's such a wide thing. I've come up with this idea that LGBT, we're like a square one letter on each corner um, there's all this grey area in the middle and everyone sticks to their little corner like a little silo how do we or do we need to drag people out how do we get people into that middle space so yeah we're a, a well, community we, with a we border we talk about intersectionality we talk about the barriers and oppressions that exist in our community. We talk about the history that was before us, why there was no, not enough people being visible or being heard, and look at the successes of how far we've come and continue to build on that. LGBT is not monolithic. The black community is not monolithic. 
there are black LGBT people who are disabled, who are Muslim, who are all sorts of different diverse characteristics. So we just have to keep on having the conversation and I hope somebody will listen to your podcast and understand or know that actually I'm going to unpick this a bit. I'm going to learn more. I'm going to unlearn some bad behaviours as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that's Lady Phil there and you can find tons more about this year's UK Black Pride at ukblackpride.org.uk LGBTU, your stories, our community. And the last thing for today, now the last few minutes of each episode are about us listening to just one voice. Now, I was thinking, what do we all share as part of the LGBT plus community? Well, we've all had to, or maybe you still have to come out. It's part of what we all have to do. Granted, it can be a pretty terrifying process in all of our lives, summoning that first piece of courage and uttering those first words, I'm gay, lesbian, bi, trans, (laughs) it's petrifying. But we've all been there and each of us has a different story to tell about it. And if you haven't yet, I hope that these stories that you're going to hear can provide you with some reassurance. If we all listen to each other, can we learn about fear, love, pain and surprise? And maybe we can just help each other a little. So thanks so much to Sophie, who I connected with on Twitter on Lesbian Visibility Day the other week. She's up first. Hi, I'm Sophie. I'm 24 and I'm from Derby in the UK. And this is my coming out story. My coming out story starts when I was 21 and in my first year of university. It was the year 2016 and I had just spent so many years of my life living in denial about who I am and who I love. I was constantly thinking, how can a 21-year-old just come out as a lesbian? Going to uni helped me to become more confident within myself and my sexuality. I spent so many years thinking that I would never be able to come out, but I finally did it. I told my friends, Abby and Hannah first, in the April of 2016. They were incredible, they were supportive, they gave me so much confidence in who I am, they let me explore my sexuality and not tell anybody about it. I was proud when I was around them. That was only the start of my journey. I told my first family member in that June of the same year, my cousin. He was incredible and gave me so much support and told me that the family would be fine about it. It wouldn't be a problem, but it still took me a long time to gain the courage and strength to finally come out to them. I spent a long time not telling anybody, and then still spent a long time after telling three people in my life. So I still felt quite alone and ashamed of who I was. So I gained strength and confidence from talking to the incredible team behind Diva magazine, Europe's only lesbian and bi magazine in the UK. They became my family. They helped me from me reading their magazine, their articles online, seeing proof that people could be out and proud and so incredibly happy within themselves. Diva are more than a magazine to me. They will always be my friends, my family, and hold such a special place in my heart. I finally came out to my family in 2017. From February to April in that year, I started to tell 
every member of my family and friends around me that I was gay. This time was hard, but it gave me the time to be honest and open with my family and they blew my mind. They accepted me, they opened arms, they made me feel supported and loved and just happy and they were all amazing. From 2017 to now, I've really changed. I've come out of my shell. A lot of people say I'm a very different person from who I was then to who I am now. I'm confident in talking about my sexuality and who I love. I stand with the whole of our LGBTQ plus community. We need to stand together for equality, for our freedoms, for our shared love of who we are. I have a large online community which have become my family, my friends. I've met a lot of them from around the world at Pride in London and that time was the most incredible time in my life. I've never been so proud to be me, to stand with our LGBT community and just love ourselves and love who we are. I'm so happy to be in a rainbow family. I'm so strong now and gained so much out of coming out. I'm now a youth group member, um, runner of a, of a youth group uh, at my local LGBT charity. I love helping the youth of our community to gain that confidence, that strength in themselves, just to own who they are, to tell the world, yes, I am this, that. I'm happy, I love myself, I love who I love. And it's the best thing, it's the best feeling to give that support and guidance and love and pride to somebody else in the LGBT community. I've also now found a girlfriend, it's the early days, but I'm loving it, she's amazing. I've never felt like this before. I've never had somebody that cared about me like she does. I'm so happy, I've never felt like this. And if I could tell myself years ago that I would be this proud, this happy, this strong in who I am, I wouldn't believe that person. But I am, and it does get better. It really, really does get better. Wow. I don't know how you're feeling after that, but I got the chills the first time I listened. Sophie, thank you. Really, thank you. That's it for this first episode of LGBTU. I hope you've enjoyed it. This is about you and your stories. Let's talk to each other. If you've got a story you want to tell or you want to share your coming out story, drop me an email. It's simon.lgbtu at gmail.com. So that's simon.lgbtyou at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you next time. LGBTU, your stories, our community.